We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast of St. Louis on the Air, brought to you by University College at Washington University. With undergraduate and graduate programs, part-time, evening, and online. University College at Washington University, offering world-class education within reach. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. What role does anger, even hate, play in today's politics? To say we are politically polarized may not be enough to explain where we are in the current political environment. Joining me in studio to discuss the issue is Stephen Webster, a postdoctoral fellow in political science at Washington University. He's researched political behavior and mass polarization. Stephen, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. In very broad terms, what is your research showing? The, the sort of broadest answer I can give you is that Americans today are angry, and this anger has very serious consequences for American politics. Mm. Um, so some of my recent research looks at three main areas that anger affects. So anger affects trust in government. When we're angry, we tend to not trust the national government. When we're angry, we tend to uh, exhibit less commitment to democratic norms and values, so things like political tolerance, respect for minority opinions. And when we're angry, we tend to vote loyally for our own party. We see very little cross-party voting in today's politics. And why are we so angry? There's a lot of reasons that we're <laughs> angry. You know, we, we watch news shows that tell us what we want to hear. We communicate with people who already agree with what we think. And so there's, there's a lot of things that are going on in American politics. And so it's not really possible to sort of reduce it to, to any one issue. But it is being utilized strategically by some politicians, is it not? Absolutely. If a politician gets you angry, that's only going to benefit them. Right? Imagine yourself campaigning for a congressional seat. What you want to do is not so much appeal to any independents or people in the other party, but you want to get your own political base riled up so they'll turn out to vote for you. And anger is an emotion that really sort of prompts people to engage in, in activities that help them defend their identity. So if I'm angry, I sort of mentally dig in my heels about the things I believe. Mm. Right? So when I'm angry, I'm not likely to listen to someone who, who believes something different from myself. But we're using very strong words here in, in today's dialogue. Uh, dislike it doesn't even apply anymore. Yeah. It's hate it, and anger being very strong terms. Absolutely. You know, there's, there's sort of the, these hackneyed stories about congressmen disagreeing with each other on the House floor, but they'd go have a beer after session, right? And, and that doesn't happen anymore. There's not an incentive for people to engage in any sort of bipartisan cooperation, because if you do that, the partisans in your district will see this and they'll say, hey, you know, you're not committed to the partisan cause. You're, you're working with the enemy, so to speak. And that's really going to most likely draw a primary challenge. And to the extent that members of Congress really only care about getting reelected, they want to avoid anything that's going to draw one of those primary challenges. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here, but you said something when you came into the room that struck me. You said, all this does not have a happy ending. What, what did you mean yeah, by that? Yeah, you know, there's you know, all these discussions about mass polarization and anger, you know, the sort of elephant in the room and the inevitable question is, well, what can we do to fix it? And there's not really an easy fix to this. There's a lot of things that contribute to this anger. And so there's not some you know, switch we can flip. We can't snap our fingers to make anger go away. And so there's really no incentive to sort of change behavior at either the, the elite level, so congressmen, or the mass level, people like you and me who just turn out to vote, right? How do uh, voters, um, how do they develop their perceptions? Their perceptions of candidates? Yes, yeah. 
So part of it is how candidates present themselves to voters, right? They can ideologically position themselves as very liberal, like our uh, new congresswoman from New York, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. They can be very conservative, like a Ted Cruz, right? So part of this depends on the district or a state that a politician is, is running in. Um, politicians have an incentive to go on talk shows like on Fox News or MSNBC because that gets their, their face out in front of the public. Um, but the big thing is, you know, you, you see sort of um, interest groups and affiliated political groups that really have a preference for people who are sort of ideologically pure, very liberal and very conservative. And so politicians also have to think about that as a constituency as well. Mm. You bring up uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and that's an interesting case to watch because she's so new to the political scene and uh, just a member of Congress now for a matter of weeks. How quickly she has been jumped upon by her detractors. I mean, and it's brutal. Yeah, you know, she's kind of taken the place of Nancy Pelosi. Mm. You think about Nancy Pelosi being this sort of Republican bogeyman for so long. And it was interesting because Nancy Pelosi is a phenomenal fundraiser for Democrats, and she's just as good of a fundraiser for Republicans, right? Republicans will put her in any sort of political ad. The Republican base gets angry and terrified, and they go and donate to their mm-hmm. congressman. Ocasio-Cortez is sort of the, the new breed of that. She's a self-declared Democratic Socialist, and that terrifies Republicans. So that's, that's a very um, useful campaign strategy for Republican politicians. There is an interesting story, I'm told, as to how you got into all of this. Uh, <laughs> why, why don't you tell that now? Because I think it's really uh, representative and symbolic of what's going on in the broader world. Sure. I was working in Washington, D.C., and I was uh, giving a tour of the U.S. Capitol. And usually I gave tours to, to large groups. But this group happened to be just a husband and wife. I was showing him through the the rotunda and everything, and we went into the the chamber of the House of Representatives. And we were sitting there, and I was pointing out, you know, the Democrats sit here and the Republicans sit here. And they got into a political argument in the House gallery. turns out one was a Democrat and one was a Republican. And that's quite rare because generally we tend to marry people who believe the things that we believe. So this debate got so heated that the House Sergeant of Arms, uh, let's say he, he politely asked us to leave because they were making so much noise. And so that experience made me think, you know, this is, this is crazy. I need to figure out why people think like this. And so that was really the, the motivation for me to go and, and study political science. You know, it reminds me of a story that Doris Kearns Goodwin tells, and she was on the program recently. And she was basically saying that uh, she had been hearing and reading that uh, there, there are many families in this country in which uh, family members would have a greater problem with some member of that family marrying someone of the opposing political party than marrying out of race. Yeah, so she's referring to a a report by the Pew Research Center that asked people what they think about members of the other party, and uh, it absolutely did. It it is more of a problem for people than interracial marriages. Mm. Now, I should note that there is some research that suggests that that finding is driven by an idea that people just don't want someone to marry a partner who talks about politics, Mm -hmm. because inherently politics just makes people angry. Mm. Um, But there certainly is something to this idea that if you're a Democrat and I'm a Republican, I, I don't want to associate with you. You you and some of your writing uh, mention the role of political elites, uh, as they're called, in all of this. Uh, what What is that role? Just so, you know, in a sort of, you know, a little d democratic, you know, a normatively desirable setting, it would be to, to help us understand the issues that are before the Congress and state legislatures. Um, increasingly, what we see is them sort of you know, placing um, considerations and ideas before us that sort of help further their own electoral ends. But what's interesting is political elites isn't a term that necessarily applies to just elected officials. This can apply to, uh, you know, people on on TV who sort of help set the agenda. 
Um, so it's really anyone with a, a major platform that has influence over, over political behavior. You mentioned earlier people love wanting to be in their comfort zones. And when we start talking about television, particularly the cable networks, uh, that's really what we're talking about. And that people will not if, – if you're liberal, you're not going to watch Fox. You know, if you're if conservative, you're not going to watch MSNBC. That, that has to play a very important role in the way people develop their opinions. Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's uncomfortable to be exposed to something that you disagree with. This is this idea of cognitive dissonance, and human beings are essentially hardwired to want to avoid that. So as you said, if I'm, if I'm a liberal, I do not want to watch Fox News. I mean, you sit somebody down and make them watch an hour of Sean Hannity, they might lose their mind. The same is equally true for conservatives who watch, you know, Rachel Maddow or, or Chris Matthews. That's psychologically uncomfortable for them, and so they, they avoid that. It's more than a question of discomfort, I think, because people get angry. There's that word again when they yeah. watch uh, these these uh, various pundits. Yeah, you know, and there, there's two really main reasons why people are angry about this. One is the nature of these talk shows are, are inherently uh, sort of in your face, right? It, it encourages debate, and it's sort of an angry style of rhetoric. The other thing is that these news shows have a, a preference for ideologically extreme members of Congress. So they want the Ocasio-Cortezes of the world on their show and the Ted Cruz's of the world because that appeals to the base, the, the people that watch those shows. So there's multiple ways in which these TV shows make us angry. You also write that uh, anger uh, diminishes and dilutes uh, trust in government and trust in politicians. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, part of it is it's, it's almost a vicious cycle. When we're angry... That encourages political elites, our elected officials, to bicker with one another. When they do that, people in the electorate see that, and so it just sort of is a self-perpetuating thing here. Uh, and when that happens, you know, very little gets done in Congress. When you're angry, you're not willing to cooperate with someone. And seeing this sort of, you know, stalemate and sort of atrophy of the legislative agenda really just makes people lose faith in, in the whole process. But anger also energizes. Absolutely. Anger, like I said, is it's, it's an emotion that causes you to take action that sort of protects your identity. And increasingly, politics is an identity for Americans. Mm -hmm. I am a Democrat or I am a Republican. And if I sense a threat to that identity, I'm going to go out and do things that protect it. So I'm going to donate to people. I'm going to vote straight ticket up and down the ballot for people. So it, it certainly does encourage participation. How do you look at... Uh Maybe you wouldn't care to mention any names, but some of our political leadership today of any stripe, uh, how they're utilizing these strategies. Let's start yeah. with the president. Yeah, yeah. Donald Trump is, is probably the, the best example you could take about a politician stoking anger. Mm. I mean, any of his campaign rallies, mm. he you know, elicited anger about uh, you know, the, the border wall and people coming into the country. Right? He elicited anger about the debt, all these things. And that really riles up his base. You know, say what you want about the president, but he's phenomenal at speaking to his audience. And anger is, in my opinion, the primary way in which he does that. Mm. There's an, another uh, politician who has the capability of doing that from time to time. And let's bring in Jerry from O'Fallon on the phone, uh, who will uh, talk about that. Go ahead, Jerry. You're on the air. Well, I think this really started with Newt Gingrich back in the 90s, essentially schooling his fellow Republican Congress people to use loaded terms. Uh, you just didn't disagree with someone. They were, you know, trying to end the American way of life, whatever that is. And uh, there's a lot of free-floating anger out there. I think it's been there for decades for a lot of good reasons when people look at, uh, you know, my generation, uh, you know, the generation before us uh, never saw something like downsizing or you know, basically, you showed up every day, you had vacations, you got a pension for a, a large part of the middle class, and, and, and that, that worked. So that's disappearing, and I think that's the source of the anger, but I think it's this large force 
that can be effectively channeled uh, in ways that actually um, counteract what might actually, in my opinion, be the remedies to many of these problems. All right, Jerry, thanks for the call. Do you want to respond to his comment? Yeah, I mean, Newt Gingrich looms large on the scene of American anger. He really was the, the pioneer um, in making this sort of the, the mainstream way of campaigning and politicking. So, I mean, Newt Gingrich is, is absolutely a pioneer in sort of engendering uh, this, this style of anger. There's, there's no doubt. In terms of generating anger, is it the politicians who do it or is it personal circumstances, uh, being poor, for instance, uh, losing your job, uh, you know, being concerned about uh, the other, if you will? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think it's an, an either-or situation. I think both of those things can create anger. Um, and one of the things that's, that's interesting about anger and emotions generally is that they're not self-contained things. We can't put them into a box and compartmentalize them. So if you're angry about something right now, that will affect your behavior in a completely different situation. And so certainly doing something like um, experiencing you know, a, a, an economic downturn or losing your job, that will definitely affect the way you engage with the political world. And it's probably going to make you angry. So that's, that's absolutely possible. Yeah. Uh, you, in your writing, uh, you say you draw your theories from uh, political science and psychology. Yeah. Do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah. So the, the psychological aspect is, you know, how do you make angry? And generally the way I go about making people angry is I just sit down with them or I, I have them write a survey and say, tell me about a time you were angry. And the idea is that if you start talking about a time you were angry, you'll get a little riled up just talking about it. So then when you're in that angry state, you can sort of ask them questions about politics, and that anger spills over to political <clears> behavior. <throat> um, the political science part, of course, is looking at sort of these political outcomes, right? So how does, how does this anger, which is very much a psychological state, affect things like voting patterns or donating to candidates or what you think about the government? So it's a very sort of interdisciplinary approach. You also talk about uh, the geographical influences, and we talked about the comfort zone a little while ago. Yeah. This uh, is also a uh, reflected in the places we choose to live. It is. So there's a real question about whether um, people sort into politically congruent neighborhoods. Um, and so, you know, I look at this, and, you know, we find that this is a, a colleague of mine uh, wrote this paper with me, and we find that Americans do like to live near people who share their beliefs, but really that preference is dwarfed by more practical considerations. So these are things like, what is the quality of schools in this neighborhood? Is, are the homes affordable? But what's interesting is we nevertheless see a geographically polarized electorate. So the question is, why do we see that? And the answer that we offer is that places tend to affect people more than people sort into places. Mm -hmm. So if you're a conservative and you move to a democratic area, you may not become a Democrat per se, but you're going to become a little bit more liberal and vice versa. So it's sort of the, the influence of your social context affecting politics. Do uh, you, you have any examples of that? Could you point to places where this, in yeah, fact, is sure. the case? Sure. Well, so, I mean, there's a general sort of geographic trend that you see throughout the country. Consider here in St. Louis. St. Louis City went 80 percent for Hillary Clinton. You look at St. Louis County, it was about 56 percent for Hillary Clinton. And then you go to a place like St. Charles County, it's about 60 percent for Donald Trump. And that trend is really, as you go from urban areas to more rural areas, you go from more liberal to more conservative. And that's sort of a, a general pattern that we see throughout the country. Uh, another example is if you look in uh, the Orlando, Florida area, Orlando is a fairly democratic area, but suburbs like Windermere are a lot more Republican. And so that's a, that's a generally consistent pattern we see throughout the country. I wonder if there's a chicken and the egg kind of uh, element here. I mean, you talk about the cities, the urban areas, where people tend to vote the same way. 
often the people are uh, economically less uh, well-advantaged, if you will, and therefore are looking to the Democrats because they offer generally programs to help such people. Yeah, that's certainly one thing. I think the, the sort of counter-argument to that is this, this notion that people are voting on cultural issues or identity. Right? You may be poor, but let's say the, the thing that's at the top of your list and how you're going to vote is something like same-sex marriage or abortion. And so it's really whatever consideration is most paramount and most prime in your mind is how you're going to vote. So it's not necessarily <laughs> that, that if you're poor, you're always going to vote for Democrats, though materially you would be perhaps better off if you did so. Maybe you can... Uh uh, and enlighten us a little bit on the difference between rural Missouri and, and the urban areas, because that played a significant role in the election of Donald Trump and in the election most recently of Josh Hawley. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is sort of the, the Claire McCaskill conundrum was how do you stitch together a coalition of people in urban areas like Kansas City or St. Louis while also winning at least enough support in these more rural conservative areas? And she was able to do that uh, in large part because she was good at it, and she was a good politician, but she also had some some very um, fortunate opponents to run against with some real gaffes that they made. Josh Hawley ran a pretty you know straight-edge campaign, but what he really benefited from was this trend of um, the increasing nationalization of American politics. And what that means is that we've moved from an era where all politics is local, to quote Tip O'Neill, to an era where all politics is national. So local issues are seen through the lens of national politics, and local races are increasingly fought over national issues. So Hawley was actually quite strategic in really tying himself to Donald Trump because that increased his turnout among the Republican base. I think a lot of people are wondering how it is that uh, President Trump uh, is in the position he is in and has the support he's in from uh, from other politicians who will not who will not challenge him because of his base. Yeah. His base is somewhere between 35 and and 40 percent. How can a group of that size have such influence? You know, they're they're really well organized. Uh, they're they're the most vocal. They're the people who would encourage a primary challenge, like we talked about earlier. And so, really, it's it's the loudest, most committed partisans who do have a little bit of an outsized influence in American politics. Since Republicans control the White House, they're certainly the group that's that's getting all of this attention right now. What's interesting is you'll see these news stories about how privately Republicans are kind of shaking their heads at Donald Trump and saying, this guy has very little interest in the policy process and he's making these political blunders. But we can't say that precisely because they're afraid of offending his base, mm -hmm. as you suggest. Mm -hmm. Well, he also has said things, uh, particularly during the campaign, that were that were very offensive to a yeah, lot of people. I know. And the Teflon was on uh, very thick at that point because nothing stuck. It's amazing. But when you get to that point, it's this idea that <clears throat> Donald Trump may be bad, but he's not Hillary Clinton, and she's worse. So this is an idea of negative partisanship. People are generally voting not for the candidates or parties they like, but they're voting against the ones they dislike. And so this politics of loyalty by negativity has really sort of reoriented the axis around which American politics spins, and perhaps not always uh, with, with good results. Yeah, and as we indicated earlier, anger is one thing, but there is a hate. There is a visceral, really, feeling of hate when it comes to the other, if you will, the other side in the politics. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, along sort of the places we live and the, the way we look and the, you know, whether we're religious or not, there are so many differences between the parties. And so it's easier to see people who are supporters of the other party as increasingly other from you. Okay, you've done all this research now, and obviously you, uh, you've uh, mastered talking about it and presenting it. What now? What do you do with it? Aside from talking to people like me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I enjoy talking with you, so that's a good thing. 
But I think that the important thing is that we need to not let this anger make us cynical because I think cynicism leads to a lack of participation. And when people don't participate in the process and they take this attitude of everything is hopeless and there's nothing we can do, then that sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So though things may look bad and people are angry and there's you know institutional consequences for that, I think giving up and saying this is the only way it's going to be is, is probably the worst thing that we can do. So I think continuing to participate and care about the issues is, is a very important thing. You mentioned that this cannot end well uh, early on in our discussion. Do you see anything changing at all at this particular moment? No, I hate to be the bearer of bad news for you, but I think um, if you thought 2016 was bad, 2020 will likely be worse. You can kind of think of American politics as a pendulum, but instead of swinging and eventually settling down in the middle, it just swings further and further to the extremes. So Trump was a reaction to Barack Obama, Democrats will offer a candidate who's likely seen as a reaction to Trump, and so you're going to get more and more polarized discourse. So I'm not, I'm not optimistic that we'll get these, you know, moderate candidates who sort of bring civility back to American politics. Well, there are a lot of candidates out there, particularly on the Democratic side, who are expressing an interest in running for president. Very broad stroke and in a very short period of time. But what what do you make of this crowd in terms of uh, abilities and? Potential. You know, I think they're all talented politicians. I think they increasingly look like the Democratic electorate, you know, non-white women. I think the most interesting thing is that they're all adopting policy positions that even the, the Democratic Party of the Barack Obama era, you wouldn't really think about this idea of Medicare for all and a Green New Deal. These are pretty ideologically liberal positions that the last Democratic president didn't hold. And so I think the extent to which the conversation has shifted on the Democratic side is perhaps the most interesting part of it. It's going to be quite a ride for the next uh, two two years or not quite two years. Stephen Webster, thanks so much for being with us. Most interesting. Thank you for having me. Great talking to you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU.